This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. This week, I am talking to Domingo Morel, who is the author of Takeover, Race, Education, and American Democracy. The book is published by Oxford University Press. And I have such a pleasure to have on the phone Domingo. Domingo, how are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, uh, I've enjoyed the book a lot and have been looking forward to uh, talking to you about it. Why don't you share just a little bit about yourself, uh, what your background is and where you are now? So I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Rutgers University, Newark. Uh, before uh, working on my PhD, I, was, uh, I worked in higher education for about 11 years in Rhode Island, uh, working for special programs for students uh, who otherwise would not have the credentials uh, or the kind of uh, financial support to be able to uh, attend college. And so uh, that, that's a little bit of my background. And in addition to that, I uh, in Rhode Island, I was involved in local and state politics as well. So I come with that type of experience to uh, to the academy. Yeah. And it's reflected absolutely throughout this book, both in the, what you did and also um, your your perspective. Um, as the title suggests of your book, um, this book is about state takeovers of local schools. I wonder if you'd explain a bit about how this works exactly. Um, you know, what, what gives a governor the authority to do this? And, and how often has this happened over the last several decades? So like on a real basic level, you know, what is a school takeover? Yeah. So usually take, um, excuse me, school districts are run by some form of local government, whether it's, you know, school board, you also have, uh, you know, local elected officials outside of the school board, like the mayor, city council, and so forth, who are responsible for governing the schools. But what we saw happen in the 1980s was this transition to more state control uh, of of, uh, states intervening in local schools. And what happens is that um, states start to pass laws, beginning again in the 1980s, to allow the governor and commissioners of higher education to, to and, and state legislatures to state to take over local school districts, which they deemed as not um, adequately providing an education for the, the the students in that particular district. And since the 1980s, uh, we've had about uh, a slightly over 100 school districts that have been taken over many more hundreds that have been threatened to be taken over. And what was so interesting for me in this project is that you know, and, and probably perhaps we'll get into this some more uh, in this conversation, that takeovers disproportionately affect uh, Black and Latino communities, and in particular, uh, Black communities. Now, um, you argue in the book that, that as, as you're just suggesting, that this is not just about school management, but it's also about democracy and all the issues related to democracy. I wonder if you talk a little bit more about why a takeover is an important area of research for those interested in democracy, not just those that are interested in the management and operations of public schools. 
Yeah. And so uh, when I first came to this, to this, uh, to study this project, this is my dissertation project at, at Brown. And as a political scientist, uh, naturally, I'm, I'm looking at this through a political lens. But, you know, there are many reasons why we should be looking at not only just the takeovers, but education in itself as really as a political project. And um, so in terms of state takeover, the, the, the angle that I start to examine this uh, from is school boards. And we know that for communities, in particular, uh, historically marginalized communities, the school board plays a critical uh, uh, role in the process of political empowerment. So where uh, Black and Latino communities uh, historically have been excluded from participating in the political process, we see that their point of entry into the public sphere begins with the local schools, and particularly the school board. And so before we get a Black mayor, for example, we get Black city council members. And before we get Black city council members, we get Black school board members. And so uh, the, the, when states take over local school districts, they can employ, they employ one of three potential options. Either one, they leave the school board uh, in place, they elect the school board in place. Uh, they can remove the school board and appoint a new one. And they can remove the school board and not replace it at all. And for uh, black communities, we see that they face, not only are they more likely to experience a takeover of the local schools, but they're more likely to experience the most disruptive form of a local school, uh, of a takeover. So they're more likely to uh, have their school boards uh, removed and more likely to have their school boards abolished and not replaced at all. And so that made me really think about this, um, kind of think about the implications of, uh, of a state takeover on local politics since the schools have been a critical part of, a, of the community's political empowerment. Now, you have two specific cases uh, that you look at in addition to some other data, which is um, Newark, New Jersey and Central Falls, Rhode Island. Uh, why these two locations to focus on in your study? What makes them interesting places? Yeah, so Central Falls... It, it was a puzzling place. So Central Falls is in Rhode Island. And I had been, you know, as I mentioned, I have I was involved in local and state politics in Rhode Island. And I had known for some time, had uh, uh, seen for some time that the Latino community in Central Falls, which was represented the majority of the population in the city of Central Falls, was very much not part of the political process in Central Falls for many years. And by around 2009, started to see that this was changing and that uh, the Latino community had increased its members on the city council and were at that point on the verge of electing a Latino uh, mayor. And what I had uh, noticed was that th this was all being kind of, this, this mobilization was being ignited by school level politics. And, you know, from a kind of political science perspective, again, this is not that surprising because we know that, again, for um, Black and Latino communities and others, the school board is the entry point. And so that wasn't what was so much puzzling to me. What was puzzling was that the majority Latina school board in Central Falls was there because it was appointed by the state uh, and the state had, after the state had taken over the, the school district several years ago. And and it's still under state control. And so that school board is is majority Latina school board, but it's there because 
the state had taken over the school district, appointed a new board, had gotten rid of the all-white school board that was there before. And the first sign of Latino representation in the city of Central Falls was because of this takeover. And so that was puzzling to me because, well, we had known, although there were no uh, systematic studies of takeovers by at that point, uh, it, the, what we did know about takeovers were that they were um, kind of detrimental. And this based on detrimental to local democracy and local communities. And this was based on uh, case studies of cities like Baltimore, Detroit, Compton, and so forth. And so that was what was puzzling to me with the city of Central Falls. And so that's why I chose that city. But then the, the second city I chose, and in this book, I talk about um, Newark, but in my dissertation, I had focused on other cities as well in the state of New Jersey. And New Jersey just made sense for several reasons. It was the first state to take over, um, first state to pass a takeover law in the 1980s, the first state to take over a school district. Uh, Jersey City School District in 1989, and then uh, the Newark School District, and Newark being the the, the largest uh, city in the state in 1995. And Newark is very similar to other cities that have uh, been taken over in terms of size, uh, demographic makeup, and just kind of like race political history. Um, very similar to Detroit, very similar to Baltimore, very similar to Oakland, and some of these other cities that have experienced takeover. Yeah, I wonder if you talk a little bit more about that in that aspect of, of Newark, New Jersey, um, because the racial and ethnic politics of the city matter a lot here to your study. Uh, I wonder if you could just sort of maybe talk a little generally about what some of the major indicators are that, that politics in Newark has changed from the 1960s to the 1990s, because there's this parallel thing going on in the book about you know how, how the, the schools are changing and the, the city politics are changing um, and Newark really, you know, has such an interesting story to tell here. So you know, maybe briefly, you know, what was going on in the 1960s and, and what was going on in the 1990s uh, in the city of Newark? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. And so when when I start to puzzle through kind of these questions about takeovers and why they happen, the one the one question that really comes up is, so why takeovers? and why takeovers in particularly beginning in the 1980s. And in order to understand that, we need to go back a little bit in history. And what I argue in, in, in the book is that by the, by the 1960s, obviously American politics starting to change. And at the local level, what we see is this emergence of, of black political empowerment in cities throughout the United States. Uh, it's not until the, really the 1970s where we start to see black mayors and so forth. But in the 1960s, uh, uh, African-American populations are gaining political empowerment, and they're doing this through the schools. Again, that's no surprise because we know that before we have a black mayor in Washington, D.C., before we have black mayor in Newark, New Jersey, before we have a black mayor in Detroit and so forth, we first have black uh, representatives on, the, on the, the school board. And so this is what's starting to happen in the 1960s. Blacks representing the majority of the population in many cities, and they're starting to gain political empowerment in these cities. At the same time, at the national level, we see under uh, Lyndon Johnson an embrace of, you know, obviously a civil rights agenda. And that embrace of a civil rights agenda creates this bridge, really, from the national government down to the, to, to the local government. And there, um, obviously, Lyndon Johnson... Uh, uh, the Democratic Party now starts to uh, 
kind of embrace African-Americans, will bring in African-Americans to the Democratic Party as an important part of, of its coalition. So while this is happening at the state level, we see conservatives really start to consolidate power there. And in part, they're doing this because there's really um, the, the national government has embraced a civil rights kind of agenda. And at the local level, we see that the the growth of black political empowerment, which is becoming an important part of the democratic coalition. And so the home really for conservatives is at the state level. And so under Nixon, we see you know what uh, it's known as new federalism, which they devolve uh, under Nixon administration, start to devolve power from the federal government to the state government. And under Reagan, we see that pick up as well. And so this idea of trying to shift control from the federal government to, to, to the states is a deliberate effort to kind of break up this uh, national urban access that's, that, that's, um, that's taking place. And then we also start to see the emergence of these conservative uh, policy organizations like the American Legislative Exchange Council, the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation. These all emerge in the 1970s, again, is a response to what's happening at the national and local level. And by, by focusing at the, at the state level, conservatives start to centralize power at the state level. Again, all in response to what's happening in, 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 in U.S. cities, and particularly in response to Black political empowerment, because Black political empowerment posed two critical problems. One was, again, that they're becoming an important part of the Democratic coalition. And two is that these communities are being successful in demanding more resources at the local level, particularly when it comes to education. And because they're able to win court cases to secure more resources, this is problematic for, for conservatives because they view that these resources are coming from you know, their suburban uh, uh, taxpayers uh, going, and this money is going down to the city. So this form of redistribution that they're not too fond of. And so, Takeovers emerge out of this kind of climate where the, the black uh, communities represent a political kind of uh, uh, a problem for conservatives at the state level and takeovers become part of the solution to break up that political empowerment. And, and this really does place us into uh, Newark, New Jersey in the 1990s. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk about the justification for um, the the state of New Jersey and their takeover of the Newark public schools in 1995. How did how did the state justify this decision, and how did they explain their their reasoning for this, and and how did local residents respond? What was the what was the the local response to what was a a, a major major decision about a very large uh, public school system, and so. Um, maybe you could explain a little bit of how this played out in just in Newark. Again, it's, it's important to kind of understand a little bit of the history about what, hap- what happens in Newark, which is important to understand. By understanding what's happening in Newark, we can also understand what's happening in other places. And so in 1967, Newark has, you know, what Newarkers call a rebellion. Others call it a riot. And uh, again, Newark is not alone here. Just a couple of weeks after that, Detroit has its own 
rebellion. And in fact, there's over 160 of these uh, uprisings in cities uh, throughout the United States in 1967. And so in 1968, the governor of New Jersey produces this report, uh, commissions a report, and they say that one of the critical issues about uh, that led to this uh, kind of frustration that led to this uprising in Newark was the schools. Number one, the schools were underfunded and they weren't uh, producing uh, an adequate education for uh, black children in Newark. Literally, there weren't enough seats for all black children in the Newark school districts. So that was one major problem. The other problem was that although by 1967, African-Americans represented the majority of the population in Newark, they had uh, only one school board, black school board member in the city of, of Newark. And so politically, that was also a problem which led to the type of resentment and frustration that, that, that produces the conditions for this, this rebellion. And so Newarkers, black Newarkers in particular, are responding to this one way that they respond is a rebellion, but soon thereafter, as they gain political empowerment, they're fighting for more resources to, to improve education in, in Newark and other cities in New Jersey. And New Jersey becomes the first state in the country to really take significant, uh, make significant gains through the court system to provide more resources for these school districts. So the first court case is in 1973 in uh, what's known as uh, Robinson v. Cahill. And then by 1985, we start to see this other case, uh, uh, Abbott v. Burke, where we start to see significant promises for uh, these uh, urban school districts uh, to, to gain more resources for their schools. And it's precisely at this time where the courts are making these decisions to provide more resources for their schools that Republican governor and Republican state legislators start to move towards the, this uh, past this law to take over school districts in Newark, in, in New Jersey, and with Newark uh, in mind as the largest city in, in the state. Now, now, you described some really interesting school board meetings that you attended. Um, for those that haven't attended a school board meeting, um, what what transpires at a typical meeting, uh, such as what the ones that you may have attended, and and what does that say about the the way in which communities are responding to uh, uh, the, the new composition of of local school boards after a takeover? Um, how how organized were uh, the the residents of Newark uh, in response to this, and 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 were were these school board meetings places of democracy? Uh, did you, you sort of witness democracy going on or, or what, what actually happened there? Yeah, absolutely. And this is kind of actually related to your previous question. So uh, when I arrived to Newark to study state takeovers, this is uh, back in 2012, I came with uh, all of the kind of narratives, all the data, all of the literature that was written on the the Newark takeover. And all of that, uh, there was a consensus based on newspaper accounts, based on the state report, based on you know, academic literature, that the reason why the state had taken over the school district in Newark was because at some level, the community had failed to produce an adequate education for children, for the children of Newark. And so when I arrived to Newark and started attending school board meetings, I quickly realized that, you know, this is the what I'm seeing contradicts this kind of consensus uh, 
that somehow the community had failed to produce an adequate education. And so the first school board meeting I attend, there's, you know, about 150 people in attendance. And I remember this one woman, um, and talking at the school board meeting saying that she was uh, disappointed that there weren't more people at a school board meeting in Newark because of all of the issues that the school district has. And so, you know, I had attended school board meetings in other places um, and 150 people <laughs> was a lot. And so I was surprised to hear that uh, this woman say this. And in fact, on average, uh, that year, 2012, 2013 school year, 300 people attended school board meetings. Um, uh, on average every month. And you know, these are fiery places where uh, meetings where you know, the community comes out and to defend their students, to, to demand more out of the administration, in this particular case, the state administration, to demand that students uh, with special needs get the, the, get the, the care that they deserve. And, 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 and all of these issues that we know as parents, um, uh, and, and communities, all these kinds of things that people are care, care about. Newark was no different. And in fact, I wanted to suggest that they were uh, uh, unique in some way because there, the level of participation that, that I, I saw there and, and, and you know, I, again, I studied other school districts. Well, the, what I saw there, you usually don't see in other places. And so the narrative that somehow this community cares less or is incapable of, 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 of um, adequately taking care of their kids is is just not um is not consistent with with reality is not consistent with the facts and that's what kind of also propelled this book in a way is trying to examine that that notion that somehow that the this community was incapable of doing this and what i find actually is that it's precisely because they care and precisely because they're demanding more resources and precisely because they're demanding that they be recognized as citizens that they are that that creates a type of political response which eventually leads to takeovers and and in the interest of time where are we now you have these two different cases that that um play out in di- very different ways. Uh, we've been focusing a little bit more on Newark, um, but is are the schools in Newark still uh, taken over by the state? Where, where, where is the politics of Newark related to schools uh, today, which is not the focus of your book, but, but I think is, is germane for understanding uh, you know, the, the legacies and, and the lasting impact of these takeovers on local politics. So where's Newark today? Yeah, so Newark recently regained local control of its schools. So this past uh, February, they had their first school board meeting where uh, the state was no longer in control. So, and that was a result of kind of like a resistant movement, you know, that lasted for over 20 years. And most most recently by strong student mobilization, which eventually led to the governor, uh, Chris Christie at the time, coming to the negotiating table to finally produce the kind of uh, path toward uh, 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 local control. And so Newark has local control now. They, there is a Democratic governor in the state of New Jersey, uh, Phil Murphy, who is, you know, and I argue about this, when you have a Democratic administration that depends on Democratic voters like the city of Newark, Newark being the largest city in the state of New Jersey, most of the voters are Democratic. So that's going to lead to a different type of relationship between local administration and state administration, which may produce, at least for these four years, the type of kind of climate that can lead to more uh, positive um, 
education experience for, for the children of Newark. However, you know, and I argue about this in the book, that even, um, you know, even with a democratic administration, uh, cities like Newark, um, the, that they have to depend on these types of kind of um, uh, co-partisan relationships in order to have the type of climate, the type of environment that is conducive to producing positive education outcomes is highly problematic because in the next four years, you might get a different type of, of, of administration. And so we really need to think about arranging our politics in terms of education to make it less volatile, less dependent on uh, co-partisan relationships between state and local authorities in order to produce good education outcomes for all students. Yeah, the, the book, and, and I, I sure hope that the follow-up book uh, is is focused on what you're just describing now, because the, the current book, Takeover, Race, Education, and American Democracy, published by Oxford University Press, uh, is just so very interesting. Again, you've been hearing from Domingo Morel about this book. Domingo, thank you very much for your time today. No, thank you. Thank you.